I want to talk about Jägermeister. Dad, what do you know about Jägermeister? I mean, well, really, all I know, it's got a really awesome stag logo. What, what else do I need to know about Jägermeister? Well, uh, you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time. Damn, that's cold. There's a right and wrong way to drink it? Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Gold Jr. That is me. With me, as always, a man who knows the best way to spread Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear, Brandon Newman. Brandon, what's going on? Uh, nothing much, Mike. It's uh, Taco Tuesday, but I'm trying to figure out what the specific deal day is. Is there something for today? Is it a big corporation Tuesday? No, I think we got through like Small Business Saturday and Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Like, I think we're out. I think now you're just spending money again. Really? Yeah. I, no, no, no. I think this is the flight day. Isn't the flight day coming soon where like the, the flights are cheaper? No? Uh, Brandon, I haven't the faintest idea. All I know is I went and bought Christmas decorations at Target to finally put up and they did not cost any less than normal. So I missed whatever good deals were to be had and all of the Christmas <laughs> joy around me right now. I am thrilled to have it here. The soft glow of a Christmas tree in my dimly lit apartment is the light that lights up my life. But it is expensive light. It is a reminder yes. that all light costs money here and that money can, in fact, buy happiness. Write that down. Amen. Amen. And uh, in Southern Cal, I spent a lot of time at Home Depot getting my Christmas trees. I've since made the transition to the plastic, mm -hmm. which is really nice. They have those lights built in, but also you can string a light around it, Mike. But I just got done spending a lot of money for Cyber Monday. So, uh, you know, shout out to me and, and all the deals. And uh, the best deal I saw, Mike, Bass, Bass Pro Shop, if you waited in line. 
on Black Friday, $500 gift certificate for $250. That's free money. Wrap your mind around that one. Don't think it makes sense. <laughs> That's kind of like at the gas station when they have the three for $2 deal or the two for $3 deal for Gatorades or something. I always yes. buy it thinking I'm getting a deal, not actually knowing what the price of an individual unit is. They could be Doesn't charging matter. me more. And I just haven't right. asked the question because I assume I'm being given a deal. That's the beauty yes. of the system. Yes, that, that price has a yellow ticket or a circle around it. I want that one. By the way, um, I don't want to gloss over a very important move that you've come over to Team Fake Tree, which is I know a big hot button issue around this time of year yes. for a lot of people who want to be out here thinking that having a real tree somehow makes you Christmas superior. It doesn't. It makes you have to clean up more. It makes you have to worry about your house smelling and feeling like sap, and it has to make you worry about it potentially catching on fire when you inevitably neglect the watering needs of your real tree. True. They, they do need to be watered, Mike. But like a, a, a house with a plant in it, that oxygen that comes from a tree, it really it really does set a tone differently. It's like having a, a candle in your home uh, all year round because, you know, it, it's that time. It's yeah. that time. I, I, are we this feels blasphemous because we're so close to December? No, no, not at all. We're dude. Again, if it wasn't already Christmas season starting November 1st, the way I've always tried to tell people. It damn sure is when we get past Thanksgiving. Absolutely. That's why we're locking it in right now, and we're letting the people know where we stand. If you want to let us know, make sure you always download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. Tell us your stance on these Christmas trees. You can also check us out in the DraftKings YouTube channel and at Gojo Show on Twitter, where we're always uh, excited to hear from you. We got a good one for you today. A, a, a very interesting one. We're going to talk a bunch of college football today. It was an awesome rivalry weekend in college football. Things yep. didn't go so well for our alma mater. I think mm. we've got a very clear picture of what the playoffs are going to look like and a bunch of new head coaching hires to kind of run down here, including one extremely complicated one that I want to make sure we give some time to. Uh, we've also got top five, bottom five from the NFL. And uh, Elika Sadegi, who is an old colleague of mine from ESPN, her and I worked on a college football Monday show. You also saw her make appearances on Fox Sports uh, Brandon, I know you and her cross paths over there. You saw her on yep. with Jim Rome before. She is someone that has had a lot of different hats that she's worn in the world of sports. But in this podcast, she is also Iranian-American. And she is someone who's extremely passionate about what is going on right now as far as the protests in Iran and how that relates to the Iranian national team that the U.S. is going to be playing today. This podcast release on Tuesday. So if you're listening to it day of, the U.S. is getting ready to play Iran. The United States has to win this game. They can can't tie to move on out of the group stage here. So there's a lot at stake there, but I promise there is even more going on that the Iranian men's national team is dealing with walking into this tournament while they're at this tournament. And Elka does a phenomenal job of shedding some light on a story that I feel like because of some recent events that we'll touch on with her are getting more and more traction with the American audience that may now just be coming aware of them uh, in a meaningful way. So excited for that conversation. But Brandon, before we get to the rest of that, if we're going to talk college football, we got to address the elephant in the room. Uh, yes. We gave ourselves Monday off to try and process this, but Notre Dame lost to USC. Uh, they had beat USC four straight times. That came to an end in Southern California. USC marches on with their playoff hopes in hand. But Brandon, I got to watch uh, a Notre Dame game for the first time live in a few weeks. I've usually watched them the next day 
because I'm calling games at the same time. So I got to watch this, had to watch it with people, so I had to be pretty measured in my approach. But how did you feel watching this? I'm, I'm curious. How did, how did you kind of take this in? This felt like watching Notre Dame versus USC growing up again in a very, very weird, weird way. It felt like USC had the explosive players, the game breakers, and uh, Notre Dame had the offense and defense alignment. Uh, and, and apparently that means nothing if, if Caleb Williams avoids seven tackles and then decides to do whatever he wants with the ball and you have receivers like Jordan Addison on the other side or in no-name tight ends just ready to move the ball down the field. It, it felt like Notre Dame is a good team and one of the best teams in college football, but USC is clearly a playoff team. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of where I landed, Brandon, is I walked out of this and I I, I watched the game live and obviously it sucked. Like, first and foremost, there's going to oh, be yeah, no moral. It there's going to be no it was moral. Not fun. Yeah, there's going to be no moral victory stuff in here. We lost a game, one that we had plenty of chances to win. You had the bad fumble uh, that happened when Notre Dame was down in the red zone. You had the interception that yeah. sort of sealed the deal for them at the end. But watching it live and then watching it back again the next day, I walked away feeling pretty good. Like, mm. I didn't look out there and see a team that was grossly out of place. I didn't see a team that got blown off the field. I saw a team that ran into the guy that's going to win the Heisman. Like, what right. Caleb Williams did is the kind of stuff that maybe five people walking the earth are capable of. I said going into the game, his leg scared me as much or more than his arm. And that bore fruit. In the run game, him as a part of the read option look, especially down in the red zone, changed the math big time for USC. And like you mentioned... Even when Notre Dame, because you know this is a D-lineman, mobile quarterback, you're taught, honor your rush lanes. Get upfield. Yes. Everyone's got to go, and they've got to play this one by the books. You can't be freestyling. It's ends. you got to get upfield and keep them in there. Guys in the middle, you got to get penetration and keep them in front of you. And even when they cast that net and try and close it, that guy Houdini'd his way out. It was a magic show each and every time he dropped back. And so losing to the guy that's going to hold that trophy didn't feel as bad to me because what we saw for Notre Dame's season was improvement, was coaching, True. Yes. was yes. people actually developing the players on the team. Drew yes. Bine had by far his best game of the season. That was the one thing I felt bad about was we wasted the best Drew Pine game in not getting a win mm. on the other side because the passing attack, USC loaded up the box. They moved guys around on every play. It's what USC's defense had done most of the year. And Notre Dame was still able to have some success on the ground, but they had to pass their way through it first. And Drew Pine went out there and was unconscious, spent most of that game perfect, completing every ball that he threw, a bunch of them deep downfield. And so I think seeing the development of the passing game, seeing the development of Drew Pine, who took a lot of shit from Notre Dame fans, who took a lot of criticism from people like me, who went out there and made the most and maxed out his abilities, him and the work Tommy Reese did together, culminated in an awesome game. And so I looked at all that and go, all right, in year one of a new staff, Obviously, you can ask for the sun and moon. You can say, hey, we were a double-digit win team before. We should be one again this year. You could do that, or you can say, things are different. This is a first-time head coach learning how to do all this at a place like Notre Dame, having to go ahead and have a young staff all learn how to do this on the fly together, and after two really back-breaking losses early in the season, find a way to get to a point where they were incredibly competitive in that game. Oh, I, Mike, I was surprised at just how competitive they were late in the game because it was a fight that we haven't seen from Notre Dame in a long time, uh, especially when the game gets out of hand. We wanted that game to be a spoiler for USC. We wanted it to be the reason why USC could not 
getting to the playoffs easily, even if they ended up winning the PAC championship uh, next week or on Friday. But Mike, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I felt like we lost to a, a better team. And if we didn't lose to a better team, we lost to a better player. And yeah. I, th- I think that realistically Notre Dame is, is not, like we're not a bad football team. Like we didn't get embarrassed on prime time. Like it was, and it, and also the game got out of hand early enough that realistically Notre Dame fans could sit back. I was listening to Ryan Harris on the radio call the game as well, and he was like, "I'm a little biased, obviously." I, I think realistically we were like, "All right, we're not going to make it. We're not. This team is better than us. We still just wanted to be bowl eligible and play in a bowl and 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 get better. Like this is a time for us to get better." And unfortunately, I was thinking in that quarter two third quarter and fourth quarter and even when the you know he was trying to like it was a closer score game we all knew that USC was going to be able to pull over, pull away whenever they wanted to yeah, no, you know what? But like, it didn't even feel like that, honestly. Like, I think we gave him some opportunities at the end there. Like you said, I think we lost to a great player that I think distorts the way the rest of that team can operate. Like, cannot stress enough for Lincoln Riley coming over in year one. They were the portal darling team, all that. Sure. Having a quarterback who knew his system, who also happens to be one of the most talented quarterbacks in college football come over and be a part of that helps the rest of the guys on that offense that had to work through the install of that. It wasn't perfect like that weeks one through four for USC. And so having that guy at the helm for all that, such a legitimate game changer who knew all that was incredible for that program. I don't say all this to make it sound like the bar for Notre Dame is lowered to some place. This isn't supposed to be like, because I can already hear some faction of the fan base that feels like, no, 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 this isn't the standard. But like, you got to acknowledge that it is a different place now when a new regime has come in and there was going to be some growing pains and you weathered them and that's worth mm-hmm. something. So I thought that was a, a pretty positive note to take out of that. I will also say it sucked at the time and I hated him for it. Caleb Williams hitting the Heisman on the sideline and having like stunting all over us in the end zone. As much as I hated it and it sucked to watch because it was our team in the moment, objectively cool. Objectively he was the coolest person cool. I've ever seen. Objectively cool Williams shit. He's one of the coolest people. I see every picture of him, and I'm just like, why is this? Why is this human being so cool? Why is he so collected? He, and he didn't just do the Heisman, Mike. He did what we talked about. He did the little boy Heisman. Yeah, he did. Mm. <laughs> he did the he did the little boy son and flipped it to a Heisman. That's a whole level of disrespect that this generation is operating off of that we can't even uh, fully comprehend, Mike. I was like, where's the flag? Where's the flag on this play? But I will say this, though. Marcus Freeman, obviously such a great recruiter. We've often gotten burned at the DB position just because there's been a lot of other talented wide receivers uh, that we play against. I have a I have a I'll say this. I have faith and confidence that Marcus Freeman can go out there and recruit the playmakers that is going to help Notre Dame compete in these games. I think a lot of those playmakers also got seasoning this year, like. You look at the young defensive backs on the team that stepped up down the stretch of the season. Brandon Morrissey balling out and you know looking like an All-American candidate the back half of the season. On offense, the young receivers. And yeah, like the number three recruiting class in the country right now for next year. It's all lined up, and I think they showed the improvement they needed to for everyone involved to feel good heading into whatever bowl game they wind up to in and in the offseason right now. So Caleb Williams is going to win the Heisman. USC in year one is going to probably go to the college football playoff. I don't want to totally discount because you Utah did beat them earlier in this season. It's the only loss on USC's resume. But if they do it, like, this is the proof. We said it off the top. 
Money can buy you happiness. Money bought Lincoln yeah. Riley a plane ticket to Southern California. Money bought USC Lincoln Riley from a place where he yeah. was pretty successful at Oklahoma, and then money helped get them, you know, in you know, reportedly Jordan Addison over with the NIL stuff. All and on yeah. down the list. Money can buy you happiness in year one for a program that is leaving for more money in the Big Ten. Also, <sighs> that's sad. Isn't that sad? Not it's really. Sad. I don't it, think it's it, it, sad. You don't think it's sad? No, because money's always bought you happiness, especially in this sport. We just didn't know about it before. I'm happy to see kids getting this kind of stuff. I'm happy that I get to talk about what an incredible actor Bryce Young is in those Dr. Pepper Fansville commercials. That's incredible to me. (laughs) I'm only laughing so hard because of how sincere I know you are right now. 100%. Brandon, I promise you. 100%. That's a, and that's why I like even uh, even at my most haterish, which during football, Notre Dame football games I am, even yeah. I had to pull back when I saw Caleb Williams doing all that stuff and go, damn, that's exactly what I would do if I was balling that hard. Like I couldn't talk shit. I was fat and out of shape. I was just trying to catch my breath and get back to the huddle. Mike, I don't know of anyone that is even near as cool as he is. Like maybe maybe uh, Vince Young back in the day, because you have to not smile to be cool. Yeah, you know what I mean. You got to kind of like play that Ryan Gosling and Driver. Like, don't say anything and just kind of just literally be. So it's interesting that I, I think we can walk out of here, and I, I know a lot of Notre Dame fans won't agree and probably still want to fire Tommy Reese. You're wrong. I, I think you're all objectively wrong who think that. I think after what we saw yeah, again, Brandon. <laughs> I think I think that group of Notre Dame fans make their made their minds up in week two and aren't willing to back mm. off of their point there, no matter Ooh, what they Marshall. saw as far as development yep. through all this season, but. I think in general, Notre Dame left this program in a good place heading into bowl season. Despite the fact that they're not technically out of the college football playoff race, Ohio State fans seem to be a lot more upset walking into this week than any of Mm. us because they lost back-to-back the games uh, for the first time in quite some time, Brandon. And that one, like, it's hard to say most shocking results of the weekend because I don't think that would qualify. I think... A lot of people, myself included, thought Michigan would absolutely go in and be competitive again in that game. I thought eventually the Ohio State talent would will out. What? Well, uh, didn't you just say, uh, Bo, was it Bo Crum wasn't playing? And he was like, I don't know, no more? No. Nope. They're starting running back. Yeah, Blake, Bo Crum. <laughs> Blake Corum. <laughs> no, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if Blake Corum was going to play, and I thought that could be the difference of why they okay. didn't end up winning. I did pick Ohio State, but I didn't think it was going to be some blowout win for the Buckeyes. And so that's why I wouldn't give that most shocking. Like Texas A&M beating LSU, wild. South Carolina going out and being beating Clemson, going back-to-back big-time wins against Tennessee and Clemson, pretty nuts. So you had some other Oregon things. Oregon State. Oregon State probably at the top of that list, too. So I think those yeah. were all more shocking, but I think the more impactful one is certainly what the Michigan win represents in that rivalry, right? Like, Jim Harbaugh doesn't have to ever leave now if he doesn't want to. We've waved bye-bye to that probably last year, but they're now – like, they're at the point now, it doesn't matter what happens in the Big Ten Championship. They're in. They're going to the well, college football playoff. Well, yeah, that, I guess that's the point. It's like magnitude or surprising win because – Although there's a bunch of other surprising upsets in rivalry weekend, that game was a playoff game. Yeah, exactly. That was two versus three, and it was at Ohio State. It was in Columbus. Brandon, I I think the part that 
was surprising to me was how it happened. Big plays through the air, especially right. in the beginning. For a Michigan team that I covered when they played Michigan State. Michigan State, back-to-back years, has had one of the worst pass defenses in college football. And I thought, okay, great opportunity for Michigan to get reps. Didn't really happen like that for them. Didn't really mm-hmm. get to see J.J. McCarthy and that group air it out. And so I was a little worried walking into this game. And I think, what, five plays of 60-plus yards later, including a couple of runs late that looked more like the Michigan team we were used to, this game became very quickly. Ohio State could operate between the 20s pretty well. And then Ohio Mm -hmm. State got where the field shrunk, and all of a sudden, that was where the Michigan might was felt the most. That was where Mozzie Smith and that Michigan defense made life a living hell for them up front. Ohio State is very capable of running outside zone, using their athletes, getting the ball to move that way. They rushed for a whole bunch of right. yards in that first half, and they got down in the red zone, and that shit changed. And Mike, you know, Mike Sane was still in the defensive backfield for Michigan, started to clamp down and make things uncomfortable, and you saw pressure in C.J. Stroud's face, and nobody involved handled it well. And it's two straight years now of them getting thunder punched in the mouth that's got people there wanting to fire Ryan Day like an objectively good football coach at a place with tons of talent and because he's lost this game twice in consecutive years there are people there that want to fire him I think rightfully so Mike because the narrative was firing Jim Harbaugh but I thought that was wrong too and that was a t- by the way that was a team in the t- uh, 2020 season that was like under 500 also like there's a big difference of being a team with one loss who is still going to be within shouting distance of the college football playoff should we start to explore scenarios after tonight where USC and TCU lose their conference championship games now all of a sudden Ohio State's not totally out of it because you've got the Notre Dame and Penn State wins in there they want to fire that guy not the 500 2020 Jim Harbaugh Wolverines where even then I said you'd be making Making a mistake where yes you are judged in part by your rivalry games inside these conferences we see it happen in the SEC all the time but part of you has to see what Jim Harbaugh had done for you at Michigan the tough part for Ohio State is I'm sure they feel like whoever they put in there is going to be good and I've heard a bunch of people say that Jim Harbaugh comment about your coach starting on third base and thinking he need hit a triple is starting to be the rallying cry for the fan base Jim Harbaugh mm. essentially entered that into the Ohio State message boards and now after the game they're running for it and I think it would be a mistake but I think also we're going to see another offseason where Ohio State's got to do some soul searching right hired a new D coordinator last offseason hired a new offensive line coach and you still ended up getting beat up in the trenches by that team that's built bigger and better than you right now and so how they respond to that's going to go a long way because Ohio State's going to have great receivers every year it's wide receiver you it's top picks every right. single class there to go along with the quarterback so it now is can you readjust and get back to winning in the trenches because remember when they won the national title with Zeke and with Cardell Jones in that first college football playoff, they won yeah. that won that by running it through people. That was mm-hmm. the full Marshawn Lynch run it through a motherfucker's face. That was mm-hmm. how that team got down, and that's not who they are right now. And especially with how Michigan has decided they're going to play ball, that's going to be a problem until further notice. Yeah, I, I just start smiling, think about the the 40-yard bombs that uh, would get them down the field. When, uh, oh, Cardell Jones, yeah. Yeah, Cardell Jones, he just would just launch that sucker down the field. Oh, my gosh, and just hated school. Um, but, Mike, I, 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 you said they have to do some soul-searching, and I understand that people at the top really do obsess over those one losses that they have and, and 
reconstruct their roster to make sure that doesn't happen again, Mike. But next year, they're not just competing against Michigan. They're competing against USC. Like, I think the Big Ten well, is just constantly – no? I don't think that move happens until 2024, does it not? Oh, can you, okay. Can okay. you look that up? Can you look that up yeah, and double check? Yeah, I'll, I'll filibuster for you. But okay, please. So I, but I think part of the problem always is, and that's a good point, is that eventually that's going to be a big two conversation with right. the way those conferences are structured. I think in the meantime, though, this is always a good reminder that schools that have a close proximity to their biggest pain are judged a little bit differently. We're going to get to the Auburn hire in a bit, but we saw it happen with LSU a bunch of times, and we've seen it happen in the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry before, where this game not only carries the weight of a rivalry where everyone and their mom is deeply invested in this, but it's also got the stakes that we talked about here. Back-to-back years, this has been a ticket to the college football playoff on the line. This is, you cannot get to the Big Ten championship without doing this. You can't accomplish your next goal until you beat this team, and if you can't win the Big Ten championship, then more than likely, you're not going to be able to win the college football playoff and all of those things become a huge issue for a program in Ohio State that structured itself as one of the teams that was conference agnostic for a bit I heard Paul Hembikides talk about this on ESPN and I've said this I've said this for a while so it's I think a pretty common point most conferences you have to build your team to get out of the conference first usually you got to build it to get out of your division first in that conference Mm. Ohio State built themselves to win national championships. They built themselves at a talent-wise skill possession skill position level to go and compete on the national stage. And somewhere along the way, Michigan decided they were just going to sharpen the original tool to a finer point and kill them right. with that. And so how they address that's going to be super important. What did you find on the uh, research, by the way? Obviously, you're correct. The move doesn't happen until 2024. Okay. But something interesting that uh, goes to what you were just talking about is that Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, is talking about getting away with the two team or the two divisions in Big Ten uh, in the Big Ten once USC and possibly and obviously UCLA make the move over there. Yeah, and, and that's I think something you're going to see more and more uh, places in college football do, especially the Big Ten. There's just been an imbalance there for so long. The Big Ten West, like we saw this year, was supposed to be Iowa, and they decided to lose Nebraska, and now it's going to be Purdue. And Purdue. <laughs> the Big Ten West for the majority of this season was one of the weirdest, most tangled webs of potential winner possibilities. And it's like the ACC Coastal was for years where you were just a lamb fed to the slaughter for whoever came out of the other division. And that 13th data point is going to matter a lot more in the expanded college football playoff. And so making sure your two best teams play so that whoever's winning and whoever's losing is doing it against a highly ranked opponent in theory is going to be beneficial for the whole conference. So... Um, rivalry weekend kicked ass, man. That was a ton of fun to watch that all play out. Conference championship weekend is going to be awesome. Like we said, USC and Utah rematch, Kansas State and TCU rematch in the Big 12 championship. That's where college game day is going to be. So both of those regular season, Utah won in the regular season against USC. And TCU managed to beat Kansas State in a game they were down two touchdowns. So fascinating stuff to watch there. Clemson versus North Carolina in an ACC championship game that doesn't have any playoff implications. Um, And then the Big Ten championship game, like we said, um, is uh, Michigan Michigan and Purdue. SEC is Georgia and LSU. They're another one. Georgia, nothing can happen to them at this point, even if they were to somehow roll over and decide to lose that game. They're still going to the playoff. So all's well that ends well there. But uh, Brandon, go ahead. Do you have any? Do you have any explanation on 
LSU shitting the bed and texting him? Uh, I didn't get to see any of that game. I saw that Jaden Daniels has been in a walking boot, so I don't know if he oh, got. Well, I didn't see if he got hurt or something in that game. That was one I just didn't get a chance to watch. But as soon as I saw, you know, that wiped LSU's chances uh, off the face of the earth as far as the potential playoff, which I, again is similar to what happened to Auburn in 2017, who had two losses, was supposed to make it. They ended up losing in the conference championship, and that's what got them out. Texas A&M just mustered a little bit of what we thought might have been there all along, I guess. Right. Um, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, the 12, Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. Something, Whatever. something or other. Um, yeah. Brandon, the coaching carousel also did the thing uh, over this weekend. So yes. as we were getting ready for Saturday, Matt Rule got announced at Nebraska, the former uh, Carolina Panthers and Baylor head coach, uh, now going to be taken over for, uh, for Nebraska, which is going to be super interesting, Brandon, like, the game has changed a fair amount as far as the world around college sports since Matt Rule was here. He helped revitalize that Baylor program and deserves a ton of credit for what happened after Art Bryles and then mm-hmm. went to the NFL and did what basically amounted to like a less problematic Urban Meyer, right? Was a college coach that went up yeah. there and I don't think was able to assimilate to the pro game. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a really good take. Um Less problematic is... I should say non-problematic. We don't have any sort of indication that there was anything problematic about his tenure other than the fact that whether it was what influence he had on it, we know David Tepper, their owner, was hyper-aggressive. They boxed that quarterback situation about every way you possibly could. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Matt Rule signed an eight-year, $74 million contract that makes him the third highest coach in the Big Ten behind Ryan Day and Mel Tucker. God bless Mel Tucker's agent. Um, the Panthers still owed him $34 million, and so they were involved in the negotiations also. There's you know, some of the offset stuff that works in there. But That's I thought, wild. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Trev Alberts, the uh, AD at Nebraska, I thought said something pretty interesting, though, where they were asked about, you know, the thought that he would have to spend $9 million a year on a football coach. And he said, let's be honest, there's a power to now. Certainly not to denigrate any of the other conferences, but that's kind of where we're heading. And if we're going to be serious about having Nebraska football competing at the upper level of the Big Ten, there's going to be needed resources to require talent. Like hearing everyone just say the quiet part now is kind of wild. Like that power two statement starting to make more and more of the rounds in these circles. And this is just them throwing money at their problems. We all figure Matt Rule was going to make his way back in college football. I don't know if Nebraska can be salvaged at this point, but they've got the resources, they've got the money to spend. And Matt Rule was able to recruit people to Waco before. Now you're in Texas, mm. which has its own advantages, and you were there at a True. time where Texas was not back. And so maybe he'll be able to muster some of that with those relationships. But recruiting people to Nebraska is not what it used to be. And so I'm going to be fascinated to watch this. But this was unsurprising given who it was. True, Mike. But I do think that when it comes to the professional coaches that find success in college, usually they have that quarterback whisperer uh, tag connected to them. And I'm not sure if a lot of uh, people who watched Matt Rule's uh, tenure in, in uh, with the Carolina Panthers thinks that he is in a position to make a quarterback, uh, a young quarterback, better and ready for the NFL. No, but I, I think at the same time, like just being able to go to programs like Temple and Baylor and make the success that he did is automatically going to buy you some grace at a place where Nebraska, it's clearly not as simple as C ball hit ball anymore. So yeah, yeah, that one was Fair. interesting to me. 
I think the Luke Fickle, the Cincinnati hire, probably goes down as my favorite one so far just because I didn't expect it. I didn't think Luke Fickle was leaving, and we had heard people say this, but for the Ohio State or the Notre Dame job, neither of which were going to be open anytime soon. And then all of a sudden he jumped ship here. Like, Brandon, I I go back to I got to cover uh, Cincinnati's game against Tulsa last year. College game day was in, uh, in Cincinnati for that game. And we were talking to Luke Fickle in our coaches meeting, and you could tell he is about the ball. Like he is cl- cut from the same cloth, I think, as Paul Christ in that sense, where he wants to be in there working with the team. That's what he cares about. Mm-hmm. He understands that he had to go out there and do the job, being an ambassador for the program when College Game Day was there. I don't think he wanted to do that stuff, but he knew he had to, and that's important because he understood where we are in college football and where that team was on their path to a playoff appearance. I've got to go make sure that's a part of this. So he understands what's necessary, but I think he fits the mindset of what Wisconsin and the Big Ten in general tends to like. He's a guy who built his program in Cincinnati along the lines of scrimmage in the way that will already be the case and has already been the tradition at Wisconsin. And I just saw Brandon, I think as important as anything, he said he was open to the possibility of talking to Jim Leonard, their defensive coordinator, who is the interim head coach, about possibly staying on. Jim Leonard turned down a bunch of other jobs to stay at Wisconsin because I think he thought he was next in line. If they could Mm -hmm. somehow convince him to stay there, that would be even an even bigger coup than this already feels like. Yeah, it's it's tough, though, with that position, especially college coaches. They... they a lot of the college coaches really, really want to be get that head coaching job, regardless if they're you know up for it or not. But it sounds like this guy just really wants to be around Wisconsin, so hopefully he can help uh, Luke Fickle's like uh, he, tenure. He turned down, but reportedly turned down the Packers for their defensive coordinator job to stay there. What? So, yeah, this is a, like this is a guy that, like you said, loves Wisconsin. I do just wonder if there'll be any sort Madison of hard versus feelings. Green Bay. Yeah, six zero. They're spotted cow in both, and a lot of cheese curds. Um, <laughs> But I do wonder if any part of this will be hard enough feelings for him to want to explore because I'm sure as we start to look around and some group of five jobs maybe even start to open or some other power five jobs that his name will get brought up. I just don't know, like you said, where he's at with his relationship with the school. But if if Luke Fickle could make that happen, you know, we see the way he recruits Ohio. It, it all seems to be there. And I think it's exciting for Wisconsin because it's a little outside of their normal like group. This felt like something right. that wasn't going to be theirs. And so I think it's a good shot of life for a program. We talk about the Big Ten West. Great opportunity there for that team to go and continue. I think them and Luke Fickle can kind of grow together. You know, They can mm-hmm. continue to embrace college football and the way it's going with NIL money and the transfer portal and continue to try and, I think, grow into that more and more. And, and, and let's be realistic. Uh, you saw Hugh Freeze and that, that coaching move. Uh, obviously, Brian Kelly, our former coach, uh, moving from Notre Dame to LSU and, and Lincoln Riley going from uh, Oklahoma to USC. There's a reality to just going from big program to big program as well. So Luke Fickle might be in a position, he's, he's putting himself in a position to kind of take his pick of the big programs once those 10 years end. I think also, too, you mentioned moving conferences. Fascinating for Cincinnati. They're entering the Big 12 next year, and they're going to do so with a new head coach. And that's a, yeah. and that's going to be a very good job for that reason. You're in Ohio. It's all the advantages we've seen now. Multiple head coaches have success there, including Brian Kelly. And so who yeah. takes that job next? Also going to be fascinating considering where that university is positioned in the new Big 12. Brandon, you mentioned the last one we'll get to before we do top five, bottom five. Uh, Auburn hired Hugh Freeze, which... 
as they went through the song and dance with, you know, after firing Brian Harson, there was the flirtation with Lane Kiffin that took up the majority of the last couple of weeks that ended up not yep. bearing fruit. And at the end of the day, Auburn Athletic Director John Cohen met with the football staff and its members and told them about the freeze hiring. They met with players, I believe, at 6 o'clock last night and put out that um, Auburn was giving Freeze a six-year contract worth an average of about $6.5 million a year. And, Brandon, this is something that I, I think for a lot of people felt inevitable. For anyone that's unfamiliar with Hugh Freeze's story and why this is going to be hard for a lot of people to stomach is not what it's being made by a lot of people that are talking about this. I'll say that because we've seen a lot of people as they report this talk about Hugh Freeze, who resigned before the 2017 season at Ole Miss in the wake of uh, Ole Miss officials discovering that he had made a series of calls to an escort service on a school-issued phone. Like, he did yes. it on the school phone. And then there was the NCAA probation for violations, you know, paying players and the stuff and the accusations that we're used to, that... To me, Brandon, really do not matter. If you were paying players, I don't really give a damn. We can do it pretty legally now, and it's, I think, a welcome change in college football. If you're doing things outside of your marriage with sex like sex workers, it's legitimate business that, that's a, you know, as long as it is regulated and done in a way that's safe for those people, what you do outside or in your marriage doesn't really mean shit to me. Now, it's right. hypocritical relative to the very overtly professed, you know, religious beliefs of this guy but again yes. that that doesn't really matter to me so after that happened he resigned there there was a two-year bowl ban for Ole Miss and for the next two years Hugh Freeze didn't have a job then he was at Liberty for the last four years the reason that there are people objecting to this left and right is because when he was at when he was at Liberty um, there was a lawsuit going on at Liberty at the time that involved uh, and I want to get this right there were 20 plaintiffs who sued Liberty, alleging the university mishandled sexual assault cases and Title IX issues for years. Liberty ended up reaching a partial settlement with various plaintiffs in May of that year. Now, one of the women that was a former student of Liberty, his name was Chelsea Andrews, was one of those plaintiffs, shared direct messages from Hugh Freeze to this young woman, basically taught, telling her that Ian McCaw, who is the athletic director of Liberty, who was the athletic director of Baylor during the Art Bryles years and was a part of and embroiled in that scandal surrounding everything that went on there with sexual violence on that campus. He was DMing her saying that she didn't know uh, Ian McCaw and that he was a Christ-like leader and was doing this unprovoked and unsolicited. As she pointed out, she did not tag him or mention him in the statements that she made, and she only shared that to indicate that she did not want to have any interaction with him. This man was not involved in this in any way. Like, Hugh Freeze was not involved in that lawsuit in any way, shape, or form, but felt the need to insert himself in that conversation with an alleged sexual assault victim while he was on campus there. That's not okay in any way, shape, or form, Brandon. And no. When you couple red flags everywhere, well, and I guess that's the that's the thing is, we all knew eventually he was going to get back because he beat Nick Saban two years in a row, and in the mm -hmm. SEC and especially at Auburn, that is something that these people are searching for. The winning machines always are going to find their way to do that. We see that time and time again in the world of sports. But acting like this is about what happened at Ole Miss just is, I think, missing the point. This is about what went on there, and Brandon, it. it it's wild. So I saw Pat Forty over at, uh, I believe, Yahoo 
um, put this out, and as did uh, Chelsea, by the way, that as Auburn said, they conducted a thorough, thoughtful, and well-vetted investigation and search in this process and in the background of Hugh Freeze, Chelsea Andrews was not contacted by them. She tweeted herself that they made no attempt to reach out to her and have any sort of conversation about this. So this is once again a school saying those things, but yeah. we don't believe actually doing those things. It, I don't know, Brandon. It I, just it falls into the same old pattern that we're used to seeing, right? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's the, you know, who's going to win us games and – can we hire somebody to be his babysitter? Or what type of clauses are we going to put in his contract that we can get out once he starts acting up? Well, that's the other thing in this, Brandon. And so for people that are going to try and spin this and do the second chance thing, like I, I don't need to hear that. Like it's the Holly Anderson over at the folks at the shutdown full cast. They wanted to, so they did. And they believe mm-hmm. that he's mm-hmm. going to win them games and potentially beat them Nick Saban. Second, we don't begrudge second chances around here. We say it all the time, but that stuff's got to be earned. And we haven't seen right. any indication of that here. What we've seen an indication of, and I apologize, Pat Forty writes over at Sports Illustrated and said that multiple sources said that Few Freeze has agreed to relinquish control of his social media accounts when he becomes the Auburn head coach. The background check on Freeze was extensive, and the school hired a PR consultant to handle the expected blowback for bringing him aboard. So, Brandon, having that there is basically like an admittance that we believe there was enough to where we need to get in front of this, that we can't trust this person with that stuff. So I just want everyone to have that in mind and look at this hire for what it is. It's not a redemption narrative. It is not anything uh, about second chances. This is about winning machines wanting to win more football games, period. Yeah, Mike, I just hope that there's more stipulations in the hiring process because it could be the start of something really bad. If, if If this continues... If he goes unchecked and if you're just focused on winning games, especially at Auburn, which we already know they were turning a blind eye to things long before NIL came through. Like, I just I just feel like this is it's 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 dirty. I don't it's, it's, I, Brandon, I, I'm going to say I'm going to say things that I'm going to regret. I was going so to say, Brandon, I, I just it, it, again, we expected this was going to happen at some point because people cannot help themselves. The one thing I just want to make clear is this is not about what happened at Ole Miss. Like people aren't concerned about that. What they're concerned about is what happened at Liberty and sending direct messages to an alleged sexual assault victim in the midst of allegations against the athletic director there. So uh, just you know, let's let's all deal honestly as we're going to watch this happen in front of us here. Um, Absolutely. So uh, all right, college football uh, always uh, very 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 complicated world that is uh peak college football in and of itself and the way that that's all playing out there i want to talk about jägermeister dad what do you know about jägermeister i mean well really all i know it's got a really awesome stag logo what what else do i need to know about jägermeister well uh you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time damn that's cold there's a right and wrong way to drink it Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. 
And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume, imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. So let's head back to the NFL, Brandon. It's Tuesday around here. We do top five, bottom five in the NFL. Um, I got the top five this week. Top five anythings uh, that happened along the way here. You have got the bottom five here. We alternate back and forth, starting with the bottom five, Brandon. So what do you got? All right, let me get to where I'm at right now. Let's start at the bottom five. A skunk invaded the Browns-Bucks game. Saw that. Uh, yeah, just randomly during the game, you saw a skunk. Mike, the first time I saw a skunk ever was on Notre Dame's football campus. I knew what it looked like because of the cartoons. And I was like, oh, shit, that's a skunk. We've had plenty of run-ins. This could have been dangerous and bad, but it's perfectly suited because it was in the Brown Stadium. Yeah, no, Brandon, uh, it's uniquely Browns. And, and over a long time of being uh, around the NFL, like, you know, my dad played in the old vet in Philadelphia where there used to be a bunch of cats and there was a jail cell in there. This is, I, I was just more amazed by the level of calm from everyone involved who weathered this situation like veterans. Absolutely. Or, you know, I mean, Browns, when they get around stinky stuff, they're like, oh, it's family. Number five in the top five, Brandon. I, I am giving glory to the attempt here. Justin Tucker in the Ravens' loss to the Jags attempted a 67-yard field goal. And I understand he didn't make it, Brandon, but the fact that he trotted out there and we all expected him to and thought until the very last second that a 67-yard field goal on the fly was going to effortlessly go through the uprights is a testament to just what a freak show that man is. Absolutely, Mike. I mean, he set the last record, so he's like, all right. Let's try them out there again, and it's the Jags, and they should have they should have won. If it was a 66-yard field goal, it would have donked off the uprights and, and, and went in. Uh, yeah, that, that was sad for me, Mike, but I, I didn't even put it in my bottom five because I don't want to think about it, but thank you for putting it in your top five. What do you got next? Uh, yeah, number four, the Broncos' lowest scoring offense in the league. Mm. We mentioned it before, Russell Wilson still struggling. Uh, I think, what, what is it, they average uh, 14.3 points per game. It, it's – it's really bad. Like they can't even they can't even score they can't even find the end zone and the Colts were doing that at will against the Steelers. It's since week one that's been the problem for them. And Nathaniel Hackett, I mean, it's very really I, I think gonna be a situation where he's one and done in Denver. It's just gone too bad too really? consistently. I think I mean, Brandon, they're going to have to do something. It's been too bad and the quarterback's too expensive for them to get rid of. So the next thing True. is gonna be the head coach. And I, I just feel like unfortunately that's inevitable. It just hasn't worked out in that spot. But Brandon, speaking of things that have worked out, number four. Unfortunately, I have to do it to you again. Trevor Lawrence and that game-winning drive to beat the Ravens, including the two-point conversion, this was his best game as a pro. This was the one where we saw all the stuff that we saw at Clemson rear its head again, and it was incredible mm-hmm. to watch, man. Like I, I, I've made no bones. I, I really wanted to see him get into an environment where he'd have a chance because he did some incredibly special shit at Clemson and just saw it there. Nails almost the entire day from a guy who is, you know, we talked about it. Doug Peterson getting there was a huge revelation. There's still been issues with that offense at the beginning of the season, but this was an incredible effort against the defense and the Ravens that we know has struggled in the fourth quarter to contain leads. Thank you for that baton, Mike. I'll, I'll take it from here. Bottom five, number three, the Ravens' fourth quarter collapse. You said it yesterday about Mike White and his uh, success against the Bears. You're like, yeah, but it's against the Bears' D. 
Okay, how about that? Trevor Lawrence finds his best game against the Ravens in the fourth quarter, which is equivalent to the Bears' D, even without Roquan Smith. So this is what happened. The Ravens' defense uh, during the fourth quarter, they let the Jags score on the last three possessions. They all hit the end zone, uh, including a 75-yard drive that uh, ended with a a game yard, uh, a game-winning touchdown, and then that two-point conversion with 14 seconds left on the game, which Lamar Jackson kind of got down the field and got Justin Tucker in a position to attempt that field goal, Mike. But the I'm tired of the fourth quarter collapses with the Ravens. But what I really wanted to put in the top in the bottom four was Lamar Jackson's clapback after the game. Uh, if you if you rem- if yeah. you remember that he has well, he has since deleted that tweet. Go ahead. I was going to say we'll talk about that in this, that, and the third. I've got it on the I've got it on the rundown for that. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I, well, let's save it there. I, that's that is uh that's part of my bottom bottom three. Uh, number three on the top five for me, Brandon D'Amico Ryan's in the 49ers pitching a shutout. I get that the Saints are Man. struggling mightily, but that defense, like D'Amico Ryan's, is going to be somebody's head coach next year. Has to be. Needs to be watching. Also, by the way, under talked about. One of the yeah. best coaches when it comes to sideline celebrations. He oh, looks man. He's out so there. cool yes. doing all yes. that. He looks as cool or, or cooler than a lot of the players. And so I just think he deserves a lot of credit. Obviously, Nick Bosa is an absolute terror. They've got maybe the best linebacker in football, all the above. But right. that coach and what he's been able to do and the fact that they held an NFL team scoreless for an entire game is damn incredible. Yeah. It's impossible, but they did it, uh, and they're playing really great right now. Uh, number two in the bottom five for me is Sean McVay taking a shot from his own player. Uh, I don't know if you saw. He was yes. just kind of jogging on the end. And obviously the Rams are suffering a lot of injuries right now, so their head coach, they're trying to keep him healthy as much as possible with a little friend, friendly fire there. Number 49, I couldn't even find him on the roster. He was going out for a special teams play. He's just putting his helmet on. Focus on getting out there on the field. Didn't really think about who he's running through. I, I love the fact when you have football pel- helmets on, and shoulder pads, you really don't care who you're bumping into because it's all about making collisions with people. You usually jump bouncing around <laughs> with people. He rocked Sean McVay's uh, jaw pretty hard uh, as he ran into this. I think his whole headset got knocked off. And Sean McVay took it like a champ. You're supposed to. I mean, I'm sure he wanted to go in the locker room, put some ice on it, but he, he finished coaching that game. Did you see Nick Saban also uh, took a shot this weekend and was bleeding from his cheek, and he he made the classic old man, you should have seen the other guy joke, and said they don't make them like they used to? I was about to say, yes, I heard the joke, but they don't make them like they used to is the shit that I don't like. Because guess what? You're recruiting a bunch of – okay. I, I don't, I don't was, like I don't He like was that making he's, the clever old man joke. He did it tongue-in-cheek. Tongue fuck out of here, Nick. Fuck out of here. Okay, you done? Yeah, I am. By the way, for the Rams, tough one too. Aaron Donald dealing with an ankle injury now. I saw a report Ooh, that said they haven't man. ruled out um, shutting down him, Stafford, and Cup for the rest of the season. Would be the smart thing to do. Like this season's over for them. There's nothing left to play for. <laughs> the Super when the Super Bowl hangover becomes the drunk tank. Just like just go go sit down. Speaking of the drunk tank, man, want to go back to the Seahawks Raiders game? Number two on the Ooh. top five. Seahawks linebacker Darrell Taylor running onto the field after his team intercepts yes. a pass. Anyone who oh, hasn't man. missed this, go check out the video online. Darrell Taylor's on the sideline. The Seahawks intercept Derek Carr and begin running and returning the ball. Taylor runs off 
and gets involved with the interception return there. And Brandon, the only explanation I can come up for after watching every angle of this play, when you look and see that, from his angle, I think he thought, because that pass was intercepted, I think, near Devontae Adams. And it looked like from his angle that maybe he thought he was down by contact. And I think he was running out onto the field to get in on what we usually see with the defense. Them run down to the other end of the field to do the group picture celebration. Because you saw when he got out there and realized, oh shit, this is live action, that he kind of pulled back. He didn't really hit anyone very hard. He kind of got in there and then just started running down once his guy got tackled. That looked like someone that miscalculated and was ready to get in on the celebration. And that's the hill I will die on with this. Mike, if they would have thrown that flag... Would that interception got called back? Uh, no, it would have been after the interception, so it just would have stopped okay. any return and been tacked on. But that's a great point. There was no flag thrown. The Seahawks eventually scored on the next drive, and away we all went. And we have one of the more incredible images I think we'll see all season long. Yeah, and an overtime win, so ball don't lie. Uh, but that brings me to the NFC South. Number one in my bottom five. No team in the NFC South is above 500 after the Buccaneers lost to the Cleveland Browns uh, this weekend the Jacoby, by the hands of Jacoby Brissett in that defense. Uh, Miles Garrett obviously had also had uh, one and a half sacks in that game. But the NFC snap South, like the physical embodiment of a skunk. Yes, an actual, if a skunk were a division, this would be it. Uh, it is all bad down there and... Uh, I was talking to people the other day. The Bucks are like boring too. Like that'd be a really boring team to win that division. So let's all put oh, our collective man. spirit bomb energy yeah. behind the Falcons and hope they at least make it fun. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for uh, the AFC South, would be there too if it wasn't for the Titans. So true. Uh, congratulations to Derek Henry in that big play or the big game he hit. Speaking of running backs, number one on the top five for the week, Josh Jacobs, three hundred yard rushing mm. performance and a walk off touchdown in overtime. That man had a day. And let me echo everyone trending on Twitter: pay that man his money. The Raiders, you missed time to jump on that, you suckers. And now someone is going to give this young man boatloads of cash, even if you won't. At Gojo Show on Twitter, let us know what you thought. If we missed anything from the NFL weekend that was, uh, we are going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we are going to talk to a uh, friend of the program, uh, Elkis Deggy, about the Iranian national team getting set to play the U.S. men's national team in the World Cup and the protests going on in their home country. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And now that the Boston Celtics have slayed the boogeyman in the Miami Heat, Boston fans will feel a little bit more confident about the situation. You can decide right now, and if you're new to DraftKings, you can also check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. 
In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, so this is a person I've always wanted to have on and talk to on this podcast. I just wish it didn't have to be for a lot of reasons for the conversation that we're going to have and and what's been going on in the lives of a group of oppressed people trying to fight back against that. Um, You guys may or may not remember, if you have watched me for any amount of time, back in about 2016, uh, I was part of a College Football Monday show on ESPNU with Jason Fitz, who has been on this podcast, and my friend Elika Sadegi, who was uh, the third part of our very strange college football chatter show on Mondays over there. You've also seen Elika with Jim Rome. You've seen her on Fox, all over the place covering sports uh, in what feels like another life ago. Elika, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And and I I guess for the conversation we're about to have um, also should be noted, Iranian friend of the podcast, because the conversation we are going uh, to have and one that I know is really near and dear to you is about what's getting ready to happen. Depending on when people listen to this podcast, the U.S. and Iran are getting set to play in the World Cup. They are a part of the same group in Group B in this stage. And the lead up to this has very quickly been about become about many things besides what's happening on the pitch, what's going to happen on that field between two teams. And so, Elika, as we've seen an increased amount of off-field tension between Iran and the United States, the U.S. men's national team, who through their social media platforms uh, removed the logo on there for uh, the Islamic Republic uh, as a p- form of protest and support for the people protesting over in Iran. Before we we get to how this is intersected with the World Cup, I did just want to, for people that were unfamiliar with what the protests that have been going on there are about and how this got started, kind of do some backtracking and fill people in. So I know this is a lot of information to try and encapsulate all at once, but to just go back to the beginning, as far as the protests that are going on right now, how did this begin? What happened at the start of this? Sure, and I'll try to keep all the pre-sports stuff uh, as high level as possible, just to give proper context to understand when we do get to the sports part of it. But um, in mid-September, a 22-year-old uh, Kurdish Iranian woman named Masajina Amini uh, was arrested by the so-called morality police of the Islamic Republic in Iran. And the reason that she was arrested was supposedly she had been improperly wearing her headscarf. So the rules in Iran are very much left up to the interpretation of the morality police that you can encounter on any given day. Um, She, I want to make very clear, she was wearing a headscarf. And the thinking is that perhaps, you know, she just had a couple inches of her hairline showing and the morality police um, they, they basically go around in vans. It can be men or women. It's very often women, actually. And they basically go around and they scold and harass and at times assault um, mostly women within Iran under the guise of enforcing religious rules. 
And sometimes they will drag these women into vans and take them to what they call re-education centers, which is where they took Masajina Amini. And she was assaulted there. And she ended up dying a few days later from her injuries at the hands of the morality police, who I want to be very clear in my language, they, they killed her. Um, and so that sparked a, a bunch of protests, pr primarily among women in Iran, because women truly understand those interactions and that harassment and the daily impact of the morality police. And they were very quickly joined by a bunch of other young men, and it quickly became protests of Gen Z in Iran against um, this, this dictatorship that has infiltrated every aspect of their life. And so kind of fast forwarding where that movement has gone over the last little over two months now, it has now turned into a full-blown revolution. And so those protests have now gone across every single province in Iran, including the ones that are the most conservative religious. You have seen very visibly, truly, and not by force, Muslim people joining these protests. You've seen labor unions join these protests. You've seen... Um, school kids join these protests. And so um, the thing to know about the dictatorship in Iran is it's often referred to as one that is highly oppressive against women, which it is, but it also persecutes ethnic and religious minorities. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example, which seems really silly, but uh, dogs are criminalized because their interpretation of religious laws is that dogs are a sin. And so a lot of Iranians do have dogs, but because it's criminalized, you really can't take your dogs out in public. Um, they have to be a secret. Um, you could be charged with something at any given time for having one. Um, but, the, but then there's also, you know, more commonly known rules like the headscarf law, the ban on alcohol. Um, women are not allowed to sing or dance in public. Uh, men and women that are not married, and, and truly even if they are, there, there really is no PDA allowed in Iran. So um, art, uh, music, signs of protest or dissent are often, are not often, they are criminalized. So when you, when you hear stories of people who have been imprisoned, it's, it's really hard to wrap one's mind from a Western perspective as to what it means to be a political prisoner, because to be a political prisoner can simply mean that you danced as part of a protest out in the streets. Um, that is really why you've seen so many different groups joining what started as protests and has sparked into a revolution. It's why you've seen men join, right? Because these, these laws and these religious interpretations that have become law are so oppressive to so many people. Journalism is not allowed. It's state media. Journalists are imprisoned. Uh, in fact, the two journalists who broke the story of Masajina Amini are currently imprisoned and in solitary confinement. Uh, a lot of people don't really know what's happening to them right now. Um, so it, it is a truly, it's not just a scary situation. It's a truly unfathomable one because you have to really truly understand the depth and breadth of how uh, this regime enforces its power and its control over people in order to truly understand why it has sparked so many people going out and protesting. And, and to that end, as far as the depth and extent of this, when you talk about people that have been taken as political prisoners, people whose lives have been endangered or taken, how, how, what are we talking about as far as the numbers and the scope of this right now? Yeah, so um, the... 
The last numbers I've heard uh, confirmed, and, and you know, because of the suppression of journalism and the cutoff of contact from the outside world, it is really, really hard to get hard numbers. We often get numbers from human rights organizations that are doing the work to confirm what they can. Usually, numbers are higher than what can be confirmed and what is reported. But the last numbers that I've seen confirmed were starting to approach 18,000 political prisoners. And um, they are kept in prisons, but they are also, um, and not just women, they are also sexually assaulted, they are beaten, they are tortured. Um, sometimes they will bring in their families as a form of like psychological control in terms of threatening what they might be doing to their families in front of them. Um, they often coerce um, videos and statements for state media to uh, deny the truth. You will often see uh, shifting away from the political prisoners for a second and rather those who have been killed, you'll often see coerced uh, videos, uh, statements for state, state media where they are basically blaming the death of their child who was killed at the hands of the regime on either ISIS or suicide or any anything other than the, the real truth about how their family member was killed. And so the family members often become political prisoners who are threatened and tortured until they will make these coerced statements that will then air on state media. And so that, as the background of this group of young men that are now walking onto the World Cup stage and being a part of this team, first and foremost, what is the relationship between Iran, the Islamic Republic, and the Iranian national team? This what should, most people think of, you know, in the U.S., we get ready, we wrap ourselves around the flag. When the U.S. national teams comes out, it's this source and symbol of pride and nation. What's the relationship like between this team and that dictatorship? Yeah, so there's kind of two layers to this. One is the way that the dictatorship presents the relationship. The dictatorship pretends that is it that it is in support of the team. Uh, but truthfully, there are other dictatorships in the world that really highly fund the national team of athletes that they have as a representation of their strength around the world. Uh, this dictatorship tends to be uh, very fearful of the impact and the ramifications that it can have of people pouring out into streets in celebration and then protesting and revolting against the government, right? So a, a government that restricts singing and dancing and public displays of affection, that really restricts uh, and criminalizes joy is not going to love the great, great amounts of success of, of a team that can really rally and unify the Iranian people in and around Iran. Now, this time is a little different than perhaps four years ago when they were there because people are already revolting and protesting. Uh, I think that the regime has kind of foreseen the potential problems that it could have caused if people were further unifying and rallying around this team. And they have basically hijacked the narrative around the team. The, the players on the national team who also play for Iranian-based club teams and were not outside in Europe or whatever, uh, were basically invited to come and meet with the president and some of the clerics of the regime. Uh, this was in front of the journalists and camera crews of state media. So it was basically a regime created photo op 
in order to create a narrative that the team is with the regime. Um, that has created some sentiment uh, within the Iranian people, to be honest, that has turned them against the players because they did not take too kindly of seeing pictures of the players with these people, which is totally understandable. Um, it's also created a little bit of a divide outside of Iran amongst Iranians who have also bought into that. I, I have always been firmly of the belief, and when I say always, I don't just mean this World Cup, I mean every World Cup, that the people of Iran are under the threats of this dictatorship, and that goes for this team as well. Um, High-profile people are often under the highest scrutiny of the Islamic Republic, so, you know, artists are arrested, musicians are arrested, athletes have been arrested. In fact, three former Iranian national soccer players of, the, um, of Iran have been arrested by the Islamic Republic uh, over the last couple of months for voicing their support of the protests. And so now think about the way that that dictatorship is treating its high profile players. And currently the World Cup is being held in Qatar, which is a country that is very friendly with the Islamic Republic. Um, and basically acts as an arm for some of their dirty work. And so these players currently have handlers that are watching their every move, particularly because they did not sing the anthem prior to their first game against England. Um, and there are reports that you could really clearly have seen this on the faces of the players before the second game against Wales because it was the most half-hearted singing of a national anthem I'd ever seen in my life. And some of the faces looked really fearful. And I think it's really important for people to connect the dots of when a team doesn't sing the national anthem of a dictatorship in the first game, and this team that is in Qatar with handlers that are part of the Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard, um, when they mumble, fearful looking, uh, the national anthem, what happened? between those two games. And reports are finally starting to come out that there were threats made against their families. And, you know, a lot of people, it, um, it's never easy to be a martyr, I'm sure, and to suffer threats against yourself is one thing, but I do think that there is probably a certain number of people who are willing to take on that risk. But once you bring families into it, that brings a whole other um, barrier to getting people to take a stand. So. I really, I, I think what's really important for people to know is that any signs, any signs of protests that you might see from the players tomorrow is, is done in the, in the bravest of circumstances. And any signs that you do not see is not a sign that they do not stand with the people. A lot of them have made posts since the beginning of these protests and the revolution saying they stand with the people. Several of them have already offered some sound bites to the media that have been circulating, uh, sharing their support with the people. And, to, and know this, like to share your support of the people, it's in opposition of the regime. It's the regime versus the people. And so when they, um, you know, Ramin Razayan had scored the second goal against Wales in their victory, and he had given a sound bite after the game um, saying that he, he had hoped that that goal and that victory would bring just a little bit of happiness to the suffering people inside his country and because the team loves them. And so I often see sound bites from players going viral. I really wish that one would have because to, to do that under those circumstances, I, it, I'm hard pressed to think of more brave stances than 
some of the ones that these Iranian players are taking. And, and I don't so, even remember your question at this point. No, Sorry. It, no, it, it's it's an incredibly, I think, important bit of context as to what these men are going through as a part of this run through the World Cup. And it actually leads me to the next part of this, and I think the most recent bit of news surrounding the intersection of the Islamic Republic and this World Cup was the decision of the U.S. men's national team's social media accounts to present when putting out a, uh, a graphic displaying the upcoming matches and the teams and the events to actually remove the Islamic Republic's emblem from their flag on that graphic just for that graphic and you saw the reporting coming out after that this was intended to be a one-time show of support for the people in Iran the protesters and the team there that has now drawn such harsh blowback that the Islamic Republic is attempting to have the United States kicked out of the World Cup for violation of a rule that they claim to you know be referencing as far as FIFA and the governing body's way of challenging this but Elika, I saw your reaction to this. What did that mean? People see this, and I think in the U.S. might look and see as a social media post that we see all the time. What did this actually mean to see from the U.S. men's national team social? I'm going to answer that in a second, but before I do, I want to explain that I'm laughing that a country whose state media has burning American flags in the header images of its like state media Twitter profiles is now making accusations that other countries are messing with flags. They have messed with flags for the last 43 years. So um, yeah, I have I have thoughts on that. But what did it mean? Um, I, I first want to preface this by saying that in addition to being Iranian, um, I have been an American sports fan my entire life. And so I am very aware and understanding of concerns that, you know, you, Team US fans would have about the distraction that this has caused um, and the lack of understanding around what, how meaningful this might have been. Um, but it, it meant everything to so many people for one day for that stand to be taken. Um, for two reasons. First, because when this became a whole thing, um, I really appreciate that U.S. soccer did not back down. They didn't claim it was a mistake. They didn't claim it was some intern. They were quite clear that it was a stand with the Iranian people. And so in this moment, I appreciate it for that reason. But for me personally, bigger than that, um, I had waited my whole life to be able to see any team of athletes from Iran be able to be recognized as something other than the dictatorship that they play under and also are threatened by. Um, and so that flag was installed by this regime. It is a sign and a symbol of oppression to so many people within a country of 85 million people. Um, it is a symbol of oppression and lost connection to the homeland of millions of Iranians around the world. And um, the, the soccer team has often been a really unifying force for all Iranians in and out of Iran. And so for one day to see an opponent recognize the humanity of these players, uh, rather than some trope about their government, I, I understand why for people who may not be close to it, they may not understand. 
uh, what that gesture meant. But I think to a lot of people, it meant so much. Well, and you've done such a great job in just this 20 minute span of, I think, filling in for a lot of people what is behind this and why this is all so meaningful. I I said when this podcast comes out, it could be, you know, any point when people are listening on Tuesday, the match could have already come and went. It could be waiting to get started. This could be something you hear pregame. Is there anything else that you would like an American fan to know who is watching this and has maybe just started to really notice what's going on because of some of the heightened urgency or the heightened conversation around their national team that they're watching? Yeah, I mean, as far as the movement goes, I think it's so important to know that while a lot of this, again, was painted as a women's rights movement, which in large part it is, um, it is truly a very inclusive movement um, that is fighting for women's rights, for a free and fair press, for uh, a fair justice system, for secular democracy, all, all the things that institutionally give us so many freedoms here um, that is what they're fighting for. Like people are fighting for the opportunity to experience humanity and to experience joy. And there are pillars that a society needs in order to ensure that. And that's what the Iranian people are fighting for. And so as it relates to the game, I mean, I certainly did not come on here to convince Team USA fans to root for Iran. I don't have those expectations, but I do hope that, uh, for some people it will actually, um, perhaps open some minds as to how to think about opponents on, on the pitch or on the field and in, in any sport uh, when um, a, t- a team that you feel very patriotic about is playing teams of people who live under d- different circumstances. I mean, um, the, the Iranian team can't even wear Nike and Adidas cleats. They have to wear Iranian-made cleats because of sanctions, right? Like there's so, there's way too many ramifications of what this government means for this team and the situation. And by the way, that that's nothing compared to the threats that they're facing. But I'm, I'm just saying like the, the breadth of the way that this impacts those athletes is so strong. And that's because of the entire institution of this regime. And so if you do see anything coming out, whether it's during the World Cup after the World Cup about the revolution, uh, know that these people are fighting for the most worthy of causes that would free over 80 million people. And that um, truly, if you want us to stick to sports, that is better for sports because sports are better when people are allowed to live in a culture of humanity and joy. And with so many of the things that most of us take for granted day to day over here that, like you said, are are at the center of this fight uh, with this regime. Elka, cannot thank you enough. This has been incredibly helpful. Anyone who listens to this will be better for it. Thank you. Uh, I hope you're able to enjoy some small part of that match and, and what goes on in between what I'm sure has been an incredibly trying time for you and a lot of others. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for providing the necessary context for people to properly understand what they may or may not be saying surrounding the game. All right, Brandon, bring it home. You know what time it is? I do, Mike. And I'm going to taper down the hornball stuff a little bit. Thank you. You didn't slow it down. You didn't need to announce that, by the way. You could have just done it and not told us. 
<laughs> Getting on my R&B vibes, Mike. You make me want to leave the one I'm with Start a new relationship with you It's that and third Think about a ring and all the things that come along with You make me, you make me want to leave the one I'm with Start a new relationship with you It's that and third Think about a ring and all the things that come along with You make me, you make me At this point, no, that's, 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 that's back, back, back on his bullshit. <laughs> Rock Brandon Newman walks so that R and B Brandon could burst back through like the Kool Aid Man. If you enjoyed it, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review, go Joe wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five star rating. Tell them how you're feeling it, uh, Brandon. Let's get to uh, something you brought up earlier in the podcast for this. Um, Lamar Jackson certainly heated after a loss in the fashion that they lost that game to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Went on Twitter after the game and responded to a user who was commenting on Lamar Jackson's contract status, basically saying that $250 million would be better served building out a more rounded team. He clapped back at that fan, told them basically he didn't know what he was watching, and then told him to, you know... Um... Just to be fair, Mike, I think we should quote Lamar Jackson accurately, even though he deleted the tweet. He said, boy, STFU, all caps, y'all be capping too much on this app. MF, never smelt a football field, never did SH, but eat something, and then the two strong exclamation points after that. Yeah, so that was the the aforementioned tweet. It was up for about three and a half hours before he ended up taking that down. And John Harbaugh and him had a conversation Monday morning about that. He said that he asked guys to you know not get into Twitter right after a game, especially after the loss. It's never going to be positive. It's never going to be a nice place. And you know, basically just lauded Lamar Jackson. And Brandon, it, it is a perfect reminder of that for Lamar. Though it's also a reminder that this is all even more deeply personal than it would be to most in a time where you've got direct mm-hmm. access to athletes because he went at the money. Lamar Jackson is negotiating this contract himself with his mom as part of his representation. And so this is in his hands and I'm sure he's feeling the stress of this season, not always going. It's not like they're down and out. They're still in a great position in the North, but there've been a few too many of these fourth quarter collapses. And I'm sure he's feeling some of the stress of that and Twitter ain't the place you want to be when that happens. No, Mike, uh, and he wants to be better, and that's why he's frustrated about this, and that's why it's the truth that really bothers you, you know? So yeah. uh, I hope he gets it right, and I hope he just stays off of Twitter, especially after big losses like that. Yeah, Lamar's a really funny Twitter presence. We've seen him post a bunch of funny stuff over the summer about getting paid and all that, but this is one of those spots where you're not doing yourself any favor. We talk all the time about how difficult it is to compose yourself stepping in front of the media after a game. Sean Payton once said when I was in OTAs with the Saints, every time you tweet, you're pe- tapping the mic on your own press conference, and so that's exactly mm. the fallout there. They had to deal with here uh brandon let's get to that that was one of the more interesting offers in this coaching cycle in college football uh deon sanders monday confirmed a report that colorado has offered him the head coaching job there and that he has received interest from other schools brandon my favorite part of this though as they are getting ready for the uh the uh conference championship game in the swack 
Mm -hmm. He was asked about this potentially being a distraction, and his quote was, To someone else that hasn't been that dude, it's intoxicating. I've been primed for a long time, dog. Attention ain't nothing new to me. Like, come on, I'm not being braggadocious. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? I just came up with that, but this isn't new to me. Being in the spotlight (laughs) isn't new to me. That is such a baller quote for all of this. (laughs) It was until he uh, fake made up braggadocious. Like that's a word for real. It is a word, but he, <laughs> he said <laughs> you don't let the truth get in the way of a great quote, Brandon. Okay, yeah, true, fair, but yes, I do. I I hear that, Mike, and I think he's right. He's not wrong. It's like when he's like, they, 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 when you look good, you feel good, you feel good, you play good, you play good, to play good, you pay good, you live good. Like it's not wrong. Like he has bars for a reason. He spit for a reason. To someone who hasn't been that dude, it's intoxicating. But I've been prime a long time. That being said, objectively a weird fit. I don't imagine he's taking the Colorado job. No, like no. I, I, I want to, I want to, I want to give the power to Prime, and I imagine that he is that type of star power that will, you know, people will go flood and, and flock to him. But Colorado, I mean, his his power is in is in Texas. His power is in Mississippi. In Atlanta, maybe in the South. Yeah, in Atlanta, exactly. So I think I think let's let's keep him regional. I don't know about him in the Pac-12. Just you yet. know what is interesting to think about though is a lot of the worry, especially with first time head coaches that are coaches of color, is if you don't take the right opportunity, you can end up only getting one chance. We unfortunately see the way this you know these jobs tend to push out people of color and they don't tend to get those retread jobs. I actually don't feel like that would be the case for prime just because of what he said. He's already such a known commodity that that risk may be less dire for him on the back end, but I still don't think it's one he's going to take because like he said, I'd imagine there's interest from other big time schools that's coming along his way. But Brandon, speaking of big things that we are interested in, let's get to the third because we got the first installment of a Philly special Christmas. The Philadelphia Eagles trio of Jordan Mailata, Lane Johnson, and Jason Kelsey are putting out a Christmas album this year with the Birds. And they got together and made this album called A Philly Special Christmas and put out their first single this past Friday. They are going to put out a signal single every Friday until Christmas when they will drop the whole album on the 23rd. And Brandon, all I can tell you is... It is electric. If you haven't heard this already, run. Do not walk to the nearest place that you can get music because these big fellas can sing. Mike, I'm taking your advice. I want this to be good, but I I have to be skeptical. But you know what? It's football players, so we're playmakers. So, uh, Brandon, it's probably great. I'm telling you. Christmas Baby Please Come Home was the first signal that came out this last Friday. It's a legitimate bop. I ended up playing it all day long. Imagine Brandon having to listen to this and then be the opposing team that gets 363 yards rolled up on your ass on the ground. These big men are dynamic. Large excellence on display. Round of applause for the boys. I, I would say that, Mike, but the, the seventh floor crew back in the day, Miami, I mean, they, they had some heads rolling, you know, and they, they were, but I guess singing is different than rapping when it comes to street cred. I think the seventh floor crew and a wholesome Drake. family Christmas album are a little bit different. That being said, 
We always show respect to our ancestors and the seventh floor crew, iconic in the landscape. Um, mm -hmm. We hope that you can appreciate all of those things as we contain multitudes just like those artists we mentioned. If you enjoyed all that, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. And make sure you check us out on the DraftKings YouTube channel as well under the Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. tab. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow.